Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Artemis, and in today's episode, we're heading to one of my favourite centuries to talk about, the fascinating and turbulent 16th century. And we're going to meet three royal women who are the subject of my guest today, Leah Redmond Chang's new book, Young Queens. Leia, thank you so much for joining us today on Travels Through Time. I'm so excited to talk to you about this book and about the women in it. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. So one of the first things that I wanted to talk to you about um, and one thing I really loved about this book is that it's a kind of political history in a way, but it's like a political history in which women are absolutely at the forefront. And it's not kind of like a political history where it's the story that you're used to hearing, and but this time it has the women in it. It's very much like the most intimate of details of women's experiences are really at the forefront and play as big a role in the political story as the the battles and the coups and the everything else. Um, you know, whether it's the something as simple as kind of menstruation and fertility to um, childbirth and infidelity and all of those things. And um, it's really fascinating. So I wanted to ask you as an opening question, how did you go about researching those really intimate details of these women's lives? Something that I assume isn't written about lots in other sources. It's a great question. And, um, you know, it's it wasn't it wasn't easy, but some of it was um, about paying attention in a different way with sources that we already have. Um, so, you know, I did find some new sources or rather sources that are a little under tapped. Um, for instance, there is um, a compendium of letters kept by Catherine de Medici's ambassador in Spain that a 19th century French editor had diligently put together, but people weren't really using it. Maybe, you know, occasionally some scholars would use it, but uh, people weren't really looking at those letters closely. So some of it was uh, about me going to sources that were unknown, but also sources that were known and looking at it a little bit differently. I was trained in literature, actually, rather than in history. And, and one of our, our, our tools of the trade is close reading, you know, where we look at language very, very closely and, and we try to understand, you know, what the smallest details, um, how the smallest details relate to the whole. And I, I could say that, you know, I, I took that methodology with me in looking at these sources to investigate women's lives. Um, and, and I also try to treat the writing of the book as if I were writing a story, a story that is absolute, absolutely grounded in fact. Every single sentence is grounded in fact. But I wanted to try to tell it from the woman's point of view as close as I can. So keeping that in mind as I was going through the sources allowed me to string together certain elements that maybe hadn't really been pulled out you know, embroidered together, to use that metaphor, <laughs> to create the to create the story. But, you know, some of it is also has to do with what counts as important. So you mentioned, for instance, instance, menstruation. Well, we have a lot of letters about um, Elizabeth de Valois menstrual problems, for instance. But 
historians in the past because of squeamishness or whatever, just, you know, sort of assuming that female biology isn't particularly important, have tended to ignore those details. So my goal was to sort of reframe and reposition and, and show actually that those details are just as important in creating the history we know as, you know, as you said, a battle or a coup or what happened in the council chamber. Mm, so fascinating. And you make the point in the book that the bodies of these women are just so important. I mean, they literally can make or break empires. And when I read it, I thought, oh, God, that's so that's so obvious. I, I don't know why it hadn't occurred to me before to think about it in those terms. But like you say, something as easy to kind of dismiss, perhaps in the past as menstruation is actually it's absolutely essential to, yeah, to the politics of what's happening. And just really interesting how you bring that to light in the book. Well, I, I think actually, in some ways, I was helped a little bit by our current politics. <laughs> I mean, this is something that I've been thinking about for a long time. Uh, but, you know, I am an American and I'm living in the United States right now where we're having all sorts of political discussions about, uh, you know, women's bodies and um, the ways in which they should or shouldn't be politicized. And, you know, I've, I've seen that. I think, you know, most historians who who work on women's history have seen that that there's a very long history to this. This is not a new phenomenon by any stretch of the imagination. And so one of my goals was to was to show that long history and to to, you know, move the female body into sort of center stage to show that actually it's always been this tool in in politics. Mm-hmm. And just before we started recording, we were talking about why this is such a fascinating period of history um, to work in. And you were saying something fascinating to me about um, it's kind of the first time that you can really start to get into the inner lives of these historical figures. Could you talk a bit about that, why you feel that way about this period? Yeah, so the 16th century, we just start to have more information. I love the Middle uh, the Middle Ages, I love the medieval period, but uh, you know, we just don't have as much on the historical record about people. You know, one of the things about when you're looking, working in later periods, the 17th century on, is you start to have memoirs. Um, and you do start to have some memoirs in the 16th century. Uh, they, they, have a, they have a slightly different tone. People who are writing them often were quite interested in the facts or sort of recording events and not necessarily doing any sort of um, inner exploration. But we do, we do start to have those sources we also, thanks to the printing press, we just we just have a lot more uh, literature, a lot more history being written. Um, we also have uh, we also have letters. Um, it's the age where ambassadors really start to take a prominent role, and they are very chatty. <laughs> those ambassadors, they just write and write, and luckily, you know, we have their letters. And in fact, most of what we know, or much, I should say, at least, of what we know about the 16th century comes from diplomatic letters. Um, but I also think that there's, you know, partially because this is the age of humanism and there was a sort of recentering or a, a new interest on the human experience and the human condition, we just have a little bit more access to, uh, to character and to inner life. Uh, this, if you know anything about the period, this is also the age of the portrait um, in art, you know, where the portraits really become popular. I think that in general, people are just more interested in people. And that starts to be reflected in the sources themselves. So, so we do have some access. 
Um, unfortunately, you know, still for some of these women, just people in general, we don't always have a lot to go on. So uh, Elizabeth de Valois, for instance, the least known of my of my queens, um, you know, we do have a number of letters, but not as many as we have um, from Catherine de Medici, for sure, or even Mary Queen of Scots. And because um, she was a consort and not a queen regnant, um, or even really not the power behind the throne, and because she died young, there's just been less attention paid to her and uh, fewer sources that have been preserved about her. So we do have less access, but because of some of the work around her and certainly you know, the work and the, the writing around the other two queens, there are more opportunities to kind of get at that inner life of Elizabeth and the others than maybe had they lived in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. And it's something that comes across their kind of their personalities and their characters come across so strongly in the book and I'm really excited to kind of meet them shortly when we when we time travel back to your chosen year but but just before we do that I wanted to talk to you a bit about kind of powerful women in general in this period because there are so many really powerful women from this century and beyond the three that we're going to talk about today what what do you think it was about this particular period that made that possible? You know, first of all, women were always powerful. I, I, I think that's really important. It's something that, you know, uh, really struck me as I was working on this book um, is just how strong the networks of women were. And they were, they, were, they were also very established in many ways. Women, you know, knew each other. Powerful women knew each other. They had often grown up with each other in the same court. And um, their friendships were deliberately fostered by their families um, because it would sort of recognize that women have a very powerful political role to play, even though that role is sometimes behind the scenes. So, so I think it's wrong to sort of have this idea that it's all about the men and suddenly the women show up. I think that, again, they're just a little bit more behind the scenes than, than people realize. And, you know, why so many women come to the throne or uh, become the visible powers, even if it's behind the throne, to some degree in the 16th century, just has to do with with happenstance and luck. Um, You know, the fact, for instance, that Henry VIII (laughs) doesn't, you know, he has Edward, but, you know, after that, uh, you know, there's two women uh, who are set to inherit the throne. And thanks to his marital foibles, you know, that to some degree that that's on Henry, but it's a bit of accident it kind of just, I think, comes down to circumstance that they were all there at the same time. Now, in France, of course, a woman is actually, women are not allowed to inherit the throne. So the fact that Catherine becomes the power behind the throne is because her sons inherit the throne quite young, and France is in the throes of more or less religious revolution, certainly uh, religious tensions, and so there isn't an obvious other person who can take charge. So she steps in. And I think that actually leads us on perfectly to to our um, first scene in our chosen year. So, Lea, would you like to tell us where, what, first of all, what year would you like to travel to? And then perhaps you could tell us about where we are in that, where our first scene. Okay, yes. Okay, I had the choice. I would go back to 1559. And my first scene takes place in Paris in 1559 at the very end of June and into early July and it's the scene of the tragic and very violent death of Henry II of France. Why is it important? First of all, uh, Henry is uh, mortally wounded in a joust, and the joust happens just after the marriage of his daughter, Elizabeth de Valois. Um, So Henry II of France is the husband of Catherine de' Medici, 
the father of Elizabeth de Valois and the father-in-law of Mary, Queen of Scots. And this, jou- this particular joust is taking place right where the Place des Vosges is today. If you've been to Paris, you've, the charming square is the Place des Vosges. The, the space has been cleared um, for, for the tilt and for the stands, and everybody is there. Um, the reason why there is a joust is that this is part of the celebrations for Elizabeth of Valois' wedding. She is 13 years old, and she's just been married by proxy to Philip II of Spain, and the wedding is part of a peace treaty called the Treaty of Cateau-Cambrésis, which ends generations of war between France and Spain. So Henry is so excited by this peace treaty, so excited by this wedding, that he orders a lot of festivities, spectacles, and jousts and tournaments to celebrate. And because he is an athlete and quite a young man, relatively speaking, he's still he's he's 40 and feeling his age, but still quite quite capable, still very much in his prime, he decides that he wants to take part in these tournaments himself. Everyone is very happy and excited by the wedding. The Spanish envoys are there. It's five o'clock in the afternoon. It's sweltering. It's a summer day and it's very hot. And Henry has already run the tilt once and he's lost and he's frankly quite humiliated. So he decides he wants to run the tilt again. And a number of people try to dissuade him from doing this, but he insists. So he runs the tilt, but there are two fatal errors, if you will, uh, that will lead to his, his injury. The first is that he's running against the Count of Montgomery, who is a young and athletic man, but quite inexperienced um, in the joust. And the Count of Montgomery forgets to drop his lance. So the lance hits Henry on the shield, and the Count of Montgomery, he should have dropped it. Instead, he holds onto it. And the pressure, the force of the blow, forces the lance to break, and splinters fly into the air. But the other fatal error is that something is wrong with Henry's helmet. And no one at the time understood what had happened and no scholar has been able to figure it out since. But for some reason, Henry's visor wasn't lowered. So the splinters from the broken lance fly up and one of them lodges itself into Henry's head right above his right eye. So as you can imagine, it's chaos. Uh, Henry is swooning in his saddle People start running to him immediately and they take him into the Hôtel de Tournelle, which is nearby, uh, just to assess the situation. So let me pause there and back up (laughs) and explain who was at this joust. So the other thing that is really sort of fascinating to me is all the glitterati who are at um, this particular tournament. Among them are the three queens who are the center of my book. Um, We've got Catherine de' Medici and we've got her daughter, Elizabeth de Valois, and her daughter-in-law, Mary Stuart. So we've got three queens sitting in the stands together um, watching this joust happen. But even though I say queens, I do want to emphasize that two of them are quite young. Elizabeth is only 13 years old and Mary is 16 years old. So there are children at this joust and there are children who witness this horrific accident. All right. Now, getting back to the Hôtel Tournelle where Henry is, the situation is quite bad. And at first, um, they're pretty sure that he's going to die. Henry actually does start to recover for a few days But then infection sets in, and 10 days after the accident, he he dies. And this throws the French court into utter chaos. Uh, The new king is Henry's son, 
who is now Francis II, and he's just 15 years old, and his wife is Mary, Queen of Scots, who's just 16. Neither of them were prepared to inherit their thrones quite this young, and certainly there's a lot of concern because Francis, I mean, first of all, he's, he's only 15. I, you know, I can't imagine that any 15-year-old would be prepared, uh, but Francis is also he's 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 quite sickly um and also perhaps the not not the most intellectually capable to inherit the french throne so this allows mary stewart stewart's family the guise family who are already quite powerful to swoop in and begin to take charge you know the concern is that france is already undergoing a fair bit of religious tension Henry II was a very pious Catholic and quite interested in repressing Protestants. Um, he was actually looking into something close to the Inquisition. Um, and now with his death, it's just sort of not clear what's going to happen to the religious situation in France. Elizabeth of Valois is thrown into uh, you know, a state of no doubt anxiety and, and fear because first of all, she was, she was very close to her father. Henry II was quite a doting father. So you can imagine the trauma of watching, of watching this happen to your father. But her, her wedding is still, it, it, as far as she knows, it may or may not still go forward because with his death, not only is her new marriage um, perhaps uh, compromised, but also it's not even clear if the peace treaty will go forward. Um, and then, you know, the last person that maybe I should talk about is, of course, Catherine herself. Uh, because Catherine you know, she, she really loved her husband. Uh, their relationship was quite, was quite interesting. She really loved her husband. So she's thrown into utter despair. And then of course, she's quite worried for her children, especially Francis, the new king. Well, thank you so much for telling that story so beautifully. I mean, it's such a dramatic moment. And that's why I wanted to get into it kind of straight away. Not only is the accident itself so violent. I mean, uh, in the book, you describe how there's like you said there's the, the initial recovery and then eventually he does die and this the uh, his doctor finds a splinter lodged in his brain that like they thought they had got all of the splinters out but there had been one tiny bit fragment remaining and that had been the thing that had he contracted sepsis off of off of it and um and had died so it's really gory i mean dramatic. oh it, it, it's gory and you know sort of my one of my favorite objects from the period uh henry's one of henry's or, or a page at the court actually um a young italian man he writes a letter to one of his correspondents in italy and he actually draws the size of the splinter in the margins because you know he's trying to communicate what had happened and if you can imagine you know they don't they don't have pictures they don't have uh telephones so this all has to happen through correspondence um but it almost seems like you know no one who's there who witnessed it who could quite fathom what had happened and at the same time there's almost this tragic irony right because we know now even reading about it you know at, at, that they were going to find the splinter in Henry's brain. So we know that there was never any hope that he was ever going to recover. So, but for those few days where he rallied and everyone was so hopeful, there's something just so, so tragic about it, right? Mm. Because we know that the end is coming, even though they mm. did. <laughs> I mean, um, I want to talk a bit more about some of the consequences or the, the uncertainties that you outlined um, a kind of that emerge as a result of his death. But I also want to talk a bit about the background and in particular the relationship between Catherine and Henry, because I think that's a really interesting one. 
you mentioned that Catherine really loved Henry, but their marriage wasn't necessarily um, an idyllic one. Could you perhaps tell listeners a bit about that? Yes. So Catherine and Henry are married when they're both 14 years old. And like every royal marriage at the time, it's, it's, it's a political match. It does seem that Catherine falls in love with Henry uh, pretty quickly. But Henry's heart belongs to another woman. Uh, he is passionately in love with his mistress, Diane de Poitiers, who's 20 years older than um, Henry. And really, that relationship is quite an interesting one. I, you know, I think Diane, it was definitely a sexual, very passionate sexual relationship, but also a kind of strange mother-child relationship. Um, Henry was lost his mother when he was quite young, and he had quite a traumatic childhood. And so he was... He definitely needed a kind of mother figure, um, and Diane served as that kind of that kind of figure as well. Catherine really loves Henry. Henry really he does does seem to respect Catherine, but he doesn't love her um, in that same way. And Catherine actually writes a letter at some point to Elizabeth saying that just you know the one regret that she has of her marriage is that she was not loved by her husband as much as she loved him. It's quite sad, but you know. You know, that, that's one of the things that's actually quite difficult to explain about Catherine. You know, I, I personally can't quite imagine loving someone who didn't love me back in the same way, but but she did. And you kind of wonder, you know, what was sort of the emotional landscape there that, that caused her to just, you know, be so, um, so faithful, faithful to him. Uh, you know, perhaps it was because during the first 10 years of, of their marriage, uh, Catherine was barren. This was quite a problem for her. And at some point there was some talk of sending her back to Italy, but she was quite li- liked by her father-in-law, Francis II. And so he refused to send her back. And it seems that Henry also agreed that she should stay. So, you know, that could have added to it as well. She was grateful, grateful to him. And, and when I was doing my research for this conversation, I came across um, another historian who was, who had, who said that they were struggling to ha- they were struggling to conceive, and um, they just there was this question about whether she should be sent back to Italy, and they say no, she's going to stay, and they have a conversation with the doctor. You write about it in the book, and the doctor kind of says, "I think you should try a different position because I, I don't know if the position you're doing is working." But then the other detail that I'd come across, which I wanted to ask you about, is that apparently Diane was invited into the chamber with Catherine and Henry, essentially to kind of arouse him enough because there was this question of whether he was attracted enough to Catherine to be able to perform is that yeah Uh, is that true you know I don't know there there are a lot of these anecdotes that are out there that are a little bit hard to know whether or not they're actually true one thing that happens with the history of Catherine de Medici in particular uh, but I think that happens a lot um, when you're talking about the 16th century is that these um, there are details that are introduced into the story but that show up about 100 years later and you you don't really know whether or not the historian is just sort of bringing them in or if they're anecdotal um so so it's a little bit it's a little bit hard to say but Diane I should say was was definitely part of that whole conversation mm-hmm. um and according to the sources you know when once uh, it became clear that there was probably a medical reason that they were barren Diane does what she can to try to help that couple conceive Um, She sends medicines to Catherine and she also sends Henry to her bedroom more often. You know, I think I say in the book that, you know, Diane 
might have realized that they weren't trying hard enough. You know, they they basically needed to have sex more often, and that may be you know why she was having trouble uh, con- uh, conceiving. And and Diane had all sorts of personal and political reasons to want them to conceive. Her her status at court was very dependent on Henry being a successful heir to the French throne. And the way he's a successful heir to the French throne is if Catherine can have a child to ensure the sort of the continuation of the Valois dynasty. So, you know, having a baby is, um, and and particularly a son, is important both for a woman and a royal couple, but also for the man. And so Diane was very, very interested in having that happen. She's also interested because Catherine accepted Diane in the marriage. And it wasn't clear that if another bride were to come in and replace Catherine, that the bride or her family would be as complacent. So, um, you know, the, the marriage is a trio, um, and to some degree, it worked for all of them, but perhaps not totally emotionally for Catherine. Mm. And I think uh, you talk about um, in the book when Catherine and Henry first consummate their marriage, his father, the king, is in the room to make sure that it definitely happens. And, and um, that's really fascinating, other than the fact that it's kind of cringeworthy to a modern audience. It's kind of fascinating because it shows just how, how public the private lives of monarchs actually was that it was something that was you know you're, you're doing it as your duty as much as as a kind of um as a private thing <laughs> yeah no definitely and I mean no no I, I completely hear what you're saying and I mean first of all cringeworthy is right can you imagine I mean I feel that way too about like the, you know women giving birth in front of a number of witnesses because the birth has to be witnessed you know these are the, these moments where I just I try to imagine what that was like and I and I, I'd rather not but I you know it, it's difficult but, you know, yes, these, these moments are very public and they are also very political, very political. You know, Francis is there because, you know, sex between the new couple is very much a political act. Once, that, once they sleep together, that marriage is consummated and it's official and it can't really be broken except for in very extreme circumstances. And so, yes, you know, sort of, again, to kind of walk in Catherine's shoes, you can imagine what that must have you know, felt like emotionally, but to some degree for Catherine too, perhaps it was sort of a relief. It's sort of an acknowledgement. She had a difficult childhood and, um, you know, this marriage really marked a step up for the Medici to have it witnessed and therefore assured that the marriage was going to go forward to some degree must have been quite a relief for her. Mm-hmm. And the other bit of context that I, I thought we should talk about that's um, really important for that scene that you describe um, Henry's death is um, the presence of Mary at uh, at the French court and how she had come to be kind of embedded in this in this family and how she had met her her husband Francis II. Perhaps you could tell listeners a bit about that. Yes okay so um, Mary is the child of James V of Scotland and Marie of Guise, um, or Mary of Guise. Well, I was going to say she's a French princess, but the, the Guise are actually from Lorraine, so they're technically a foreign duchy, but um, she's raised in France, and so for all intents and purposes, culturally, she's, she's French. Mary gets sent by her mother to the French court when she's five, and that is because Mary inherits the Scottish throne when she's nine days old. The English, who always coveted the Scottish throne, have, um, you know, sent their armies up to Scotland to try to convince uh, Mary of Guise to hand her daughter over in marriage to the heir to the, to the English throne, Edward, who will eventually become Edward VI. 
And Mary Guise has no interest in doing this, first of all, because she wants to preserve the um, sovereignty and autonomy of the Scottish throne, and also because um, England at the time is you know, definitely showing that it's becoming a Protestant kingdom, and Mary of Guise is a pious Catholic, so she does not have any interest in creating an alliance between England and Scotland. So um, she turns to France. France and Scotland have, um, for generations, um, um, enjoyed what's called the Old Alliance, but it had recently been renewed by James V. And so she looks to France as an ally to kind of um, give her daughter a refuge to, 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 to keep her from falling into English hands. So when Mary is five, she sends, uh, Mary of Guise sends Mary to the French court. And part of the agreement was that Henry II says, sure, we'll take Mary, we'll help you in the war against in, uh, uh, England, but in exchange, Mary will marry my son and heir, Francis, who would become Francis II. For, for many years, it's actually a kind of an unofficial betrothal. It's just sort of a, a soft promise. But uh, Mary, for, for Mary, it was kind of it was kind of lucky because she's at the French court. It's very safe there, uh, quite different than her experience in Scotland. And she also gets to know Francis as a friend. Uh, he's 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 very little when she goes uh, there for the first time. She's five and he's um, three, but she's basically raised alongside him. And at the time, that is very unusual. Most marriages are going to be like Catherine's, where um, a bride wouldn't have. Uh, met her her husband until until you know frankly their wedding day, and often they're quite uneven. Um, it's far more likely that a young wo- woman might marry someone much older than her. For instance, Elizabeth de Valois marries a man who um, is twenty years older than her. But Mary gets to marry a boy who's her age and someone who she's known her whole life. So they're quite good friends by the time. Hello, it's Peter here, and it's time for a word about our partners, Ace Cultural Tours, in this break. Spring is now in full swing. The days are getting longer, and it's the ideal time of year to get out exploring. In fact, as I speak, that is exactly what Ace are doing. To give you a sense of the range of tours they conduct, let me tell you about their ones for June alone. You can cruise along Czech rivers with them and enjoy the music and art of Prague. You can head further east to tour the citadels of Transylvania. If music's your thing, then you can head to the Bach Festival in Leipzig or the Olbra Festival in Suffolk. Then there's tours to all the charming corners of the British Isles, to the St Magnus Festival on Orkney, or to view Irish castles, or to discover Roman Anglesey, or to learn about the churches of Norfolk, or the artists of Cornwall. If you're after a bit more sun than our temperamental islands can safely promise, then you could always jet off to learn about northern Greece with the expert guide Andrew Wilson. Find a tour that's perfect for you at www aceculturaltours.co.uk Holidays for the culturally curious. And that's where we are in this first scene. That's the kind of moment, that that's the scene that we're looking at are these two teenagers recently married inheriting this great kingdom in a kind of t- moment of real uncertainty about what the, the future political and religious landscape is going to look like. But I think 
that takes us really nicely into our second scene because they're being watched over carefully by Catherine. So would you like to tell us where we are for our second scene in 1559? Sure. So the second scene happens not long after the first in mid-July 1559 in the Louvre. So Catherine does something very interesting just after Henry II's death. And, and I should say that this is one of the moments where we actually don't have a lot of access to Catherine's inner life. We don't really know what she's thinking. And I, oh gosh, I just wish I, I, wish I did. <laughs> because she makes some really interesting choices and I would just love to know what's behind them. So the first interesting choice is that she does not follow custom. Custom would have had her retreat Um, and effectively isolate herself for 40 days to be in mourning for her husband. But she doesn't do that. Instead, she follows uh, the new Francis II and Mary Stuart and the Guises to the Louvre, along with the royal children. Um, And we can speculate why she does that. Um, I think she was quite worried, again, about what was going to happen with Francis II. She's also quite worried about her other children. She has several other children, among them, royal princes. And Catherine knows that young children, particularly in volatile times, um, young royal children can can be used. They can become pawns. And so I do think that she was very eager to stay close to them to make sure that nothing would happen to them. She doesn't go, she, she is in official mourning, but she doesn't go into isolation. And instead, she um, she does welcome visitors who are there to um, you know, offer their official condolences. So the scene I want to talk about is actually narrated by the Duke of Alba, who is the Spanish, the very haughty, very arrogant Spanish Duke of Alba, who Philip II had uh, sent to, to Paris to stand as proxy for him at the wedding with Elizabeth of Valois, is the one who Philip sends to offer his condolences for the death of Henry II. The Duke of Alba narrates this whole scene in a letter to Philip II. And what happens is when he walks into the chamber where Catherine is, the first thing he sees is that the whole room is just covered in black. The walls are draped in black and the windows are covered in black and there are black bedspreads and hangings. And Catherine herself seems to be covered in black. And there's even this train on the floor that's swirled around her feet. And it's just, just yards and yards and yards of black. And she's wearing black veils, except she's got this one white collar around her neck, which is sort of this striking uh, bit of white. And uh, the Duke of Alba is surprised by this because the color of mourning in France is actually white. (laughs) So I think he expected to see more white, but instead Catherine has adopted the color of mourning that um, is usually used in Italy and brought it in. And and again, you know, I'm sort of fascinated by this because, you know, Catherine was was in France by the time she was 14 years old. So why she decided to go with an Italian custom is rather curious, but it's, it's definitely striking. The thing that's so interesting to me about this is that I would say that this is like a moment where the Duke of Alba happens upon the beginning of Catherine's branding as the queen mother. So Catherine becomes famous and continues to be famous for always wearing black from the moment that Henry II was, was killed until she dies. Catherine wears black all the time. I think there are two exceptions. 
um, the weddings of her sons where she wears something different, but that other, otherwise it's black. And this made her very identifiable, both at court and in any sort of representation. Um, you can see in tapestries from the time period and portraits and pictures, she's always wearing black. And that black had a lot of significance. It, um, it was a performance of her fidelity, her ongoing fidelity to the memory of Henry II, and also her fidelity to the realm and to her sons, the kings of France, as the queen mother of France. But so here, here the Duke of Alba comes in and he sort of just happens upon the beginning of, of, of Catherine's brand. And what we don't know is whether or not she's doing this on purpose. Is this a performance or purely the representation of Catherine's grief? And, and I think it, it's very possible that, that it's both. I mean, Catherine was was just, you know, incredibly traumatized by the death of Henry II. And um, the Duke of Alba notes that. He, he says that when he tries to speak to the Queen Mother, she can't speak. She, she can barely mumble. Um, and so Mary Stuart, who is sitting by her side, wearing all white, by the way, <laughs> Mary Stuart is the one who speaks speaks to the Duke of Alba on behalf of the French crown. So we know that she's, she's, she's really despairing. And I think that I would say that one of, one of Catherine's sort of, some of her political genius comes from being able to take uh, sort of a very authentic, very authentic and sincere, sincere feelings, a very authentic position and turn it in her political favor. So there's a lot of energy you know, behind that grief that she then parlays into sort of a political tool. And that may be what's happening in that room at that moment as the Duke of Alba steps in. Mm, God, and you've described it so vividly. I mean, it's almost like a film still, isn't it? You can see it. I can see the kind of light streaming through the window in between these black curtains and the kind of dust in the air of this like dark, solemn room it's really like a piece of an amazing set piece really and I think there's one there's a candle there's like a single candle that's glowing but you know you got to give credit to the Duke of Alba (laughs) who knew that he was capable of such descriptive powers but that whole Mm. scene you know he's the one who lays it out in that letter and this is also the moment when she becomes the queen mother which is not a term that is usually applied to other women queens in her situation could you talk a bit about that yes um that's another another decision that Catherine makes that you know it would i would love love it if she had uh written down her reasoning normally a woman in her position would be called the dowager queen or queen dowager and certainly for instance in letters of mary of guise uh to mary of guise excuse me after um her husband dies she's always addressed as the queen dowager but Catherine made a point that she wanted to be known as the Queen Mother. And again, you know, you wonder, like, what are the political wheels that are turning in her, in her mind just after the death of Henry II? Catherine was extremely savvy politically. And, you know, you think that, or you start to wonder if she already recognized that calling herself Queen Mother was a way of, of creating a kind of um, stability for the realm of indicating, you know, that she's there, she's given birth to the to the current king, she's given birth to all these foreign princes, or sorry, French princes, French royal princes who could inherit the throne if need be. And so, you know, she is representing in her in her very title the stability of France by choosing to go with the name the Queen Mother. 
Mm. And it's almost, it's making me think of like, in a world in which your power as a woman, as a royal woman in particular, is so tied to your fertility and your, that is what it's about, basically. It's about being able to bear an heir. And kind of, reclaiming feels like a kind of awful, like very modern word to use, but she's kind of owning it completely. She's making it part of her her power in a very assertive way, which is, is, her personality is coming across very strongly in this scene, I feel. Yes, I think so. And, and, and giving sort of the Dowager Queen real political power, as you say, real mm. political authority, or at least mm. making it available as a tool. And then later, after Francis II dies and, and her young son Charles inherits the throne, that will become the tool that Catherine uses um, in order to assume the regency. And could you talk a little bit about her relationship with Francis II? Because they're very close. She's a very doting mother, isn't she? Yes, she's very doting. And I think that's from, well, a couple of reasons. First of all, you know, Catherine herself was an orphan and had this sort of tumultuous uh, childhood. And, you know, she was cared for uh, definitely by her Medici family, but she didn't necessarily have that, um, you know, close relationship with the kind of parental unit. And she also was barren for 10 years. Uh, and we already spoke about the fact that she uh, definitely risked repudiation um, because she was barren. And so when she finally has her children, it's it's practically like she can't take her eyes off them. I mean, she they are raised apart from her in the royal nursery. And that's almost by necessity because both she and Henry were extremely worried that they would fall ill, that they would get sick and die. Um, so they, they raise them um, apart so that they're a little bit more protected. But she's um, quite on top of the details so to speak. So she is very close to all of her children. Um, and I think Francis, particularly because he was the firstborn, he was a son. And so he's the one who seals her place at the French court is very important to her. Um, as I said before, he's, he's physically a little bit weak and he's quite immature. I mean, you know, with all of these young people, especially because they die young, sometimes they, they, they get this sort of characterization. He's often characterized as a little bit feeble, minded or just you know just not the 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 smartest kid I don't know if that's fair you know perhaps had he grown older he really would have come into his own he was only 15 (laughs) when he inherited the throne but he does not he really doesn't want to leave his mother's side Um, and in fact when Catherine moves into the Louvre she takes the chamber directly above his and it's connected by a staircase so that they can reach each other at any hour of the day and so even though it's not official, he does call upon her as a kind of unofficial advisor um, from the very beginning. Mm. And you mentioned that Mary Stuart is in the room with her when the Duke of Alba visits for this extraordinary scene that we're stood in right now. I wonder if we could talk a bit about the Guise family, because over the course of the next year, who kind of has the upper hand is going to become really, really important. And um, obviously, Catherine's relationship with Mary is going to change as that happens. Sure. So the Guise family actually originates in Lorraine, which is an independent duchy. So to the French, they're technically foreign princes, but this actually gives them a certain cachet and standing at the at the French royal court. And um, the Guise uncles, uh, Mary's Guise uncles, the Cardinal of Lorraine and uh, Francis, the Duke of Guise, are young. They're they're about Henry II's age when they first come to court and, and they become quite friendly with him. Uh, the Guise themselves are, they're very ambitious. Uh, in, in some ways, they're not that different from the Medici, except for 
this is a this is a a family that's connected to the royal family by blood. They 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 are they are noble. They boast very old royal blood, certainly through um, their origins in in Lorraine. So they they have a greater standing than the Medici, but they're very striving. They are they were very happy that Mary of Guise, for instance, uh, marries um, and James V. Uh, thereby inheriting the crown, and they use Mary and her crown of Scotland as a tool uh, in their own political ambitions. So, um, you know, sometimes the fact that the Guise swoop in after the death of Henry II is seen as a coup, but I wouldn't think of it as a coup in the same way that we might think of a coup now. Um, I think in the book I talk about it as a soft coup, (laughs) in the sense that they weren't necessarily the the, the ones who would naturally uh, take over the power behind the throne, but they were very important advisors to Henry II. And since they were related to Mary, Queen of Scots, in some ways it was quite accepted that they would be there in the room with Francis II. And the Cardinal of Lorraine, who is really a very capable individual, starts, you know, kind of settling things down and, you um, uh, uh, paving the way to a little bit more, uh, let me say that differently. He starts organizing things uh, quite quickly. And so, you know, their presence is actually seen as uh, not necessarily a terrible thing after the death mm. of Henry II. I guess I was wondering if Catherine felt a bit threatened by them and that's why she made this move to kind of be like, I am the Queen Mother, I'm going to be here uh, ne- with my staircase connecting me to the King, my son. <laughs> yeah. Wearing all black. Um, mm. Yeah, you know, again, th- these are one of the things where I just would love to get into Catherine's head. Possibly she was worried about them uh, because they are a little grabby. You know, they, they, they are strivers. You know, Catherine is, uh, she's not necessarily um, praised for this, you know, in the ensuing centuries, but Catherine seems to be quite interested in establishing peace among the warring religious and political factions in France. And the Guises don't seem to be that interested in establishing peace. So, you know, in terms of, of policy, Catherine might have seen them as a threat. Um, and I think she is also a little bit worried about how much influence they would have over Francis. But, you know, I say this with a little bit of a, a benefit of, of hindsight. I mean, she will come to distrust the Guises, but it's not entirely clear that she distrusts them early on. And she was quite close with certain um, female members of the Guise family especially um, the, the mother of the Guises, Antoinette de Bourbon, they're actually related. You know, that's the thing. All these royal families are related. <laughs> um, so it's a little bit hard to piece out, you know, exactly where the allegiances lie. But she uh, she was close to her and she was very friendly with Mary of Guise. Um, she's extremely friendly with Anne uh, d'Este, who is married to the young Duke of Guise. Um, she's an Italian woman who, who comes to France to marry the Duke of Guise. And, and so there are, there are many reasons to believe that actually Catherine was hopeful that there would be quite an alliance between her and the Guises. So all of this is just, you know, going to, again, to reinforce the idea that she makes these choices and we can't exactly be sure why she makes them. And it's very difficult to try to be in her head and try to push away what we know is going to happen in the future. Mm, mm, with hindsight. 
I think we better head to our third and final scene in 1559, which is another incredible set piece. So would you like, if we were, if we were stood somewhere, where would we be stood and with who? Uh, Oh gosh. Okay. So first of all, it's a few months later, it's late November, 1559 and winter has set in. We are in Châtellerault, which is in Nouvelle-Aquitaine, southwest of Paris. And um, if I were to label the scene, I would call it the departure of Catherine's daughter, Elizabeth de Valois, for Spain. Okay, let's see if I can paint this picture. So there are a lot of people. (laughs) There's Elizabeth. There is her entire entourage, which is dozens, dozens strong. There's a lot of franticness. Um, people are getting ready to say goodbye. The, court, the entire court is there to say goodbye to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is still just 13 years old. Catherine had actually delayed sending Elizabeth to Spain. Again, partially because soon after the death of Henry II, no one is exactly sure what's going to happen to the peace treaty and no one is exactly sure what's going to happen to the marriage. But it becomes clear that both sides want the peace treaty to hold. And then Catherine stalls for other reasons. Again, we can't exactly be sure why, but I do think that she was really loath to part with Elizabeth. She and Elizabeth were very, very close. Um, a writer, a French writer, Brantome, would later say that, um, you know, Elizabeth was Catherine's favorite child. She's the oldest girl. She's the first one to leave home in a really consequential way. Catherine has another daughter who's actually younger. Her name is Claude. Um, and Claude was married first, but she's married to the young Duke of Lorraine. And, and so Claude is frequently at the French court and Catherine knows she's going to see her, uh, you know, uh, quite often, but Elizabeth is going to Spain, and it's it's just really not sure if they'll ever see each other again. Catherine is is really quite um, upset about it, and so is Elizabeth. In fact, once they get to Châtellerault, um, she asks if they can't delay the departure for two more days, and um, she had also asked if if Catherine couldn't go with her a little bit further, all the way to Lusignan in the south. But Francis II, who who has to stay in the area, he he refuses because he doesn't want his mom to leave. And so, I mean, you asked me where would we be standing? I guess you know maybe at that moment, you know, where Francis is there and Catherine is there and Elizabeth is there and everybody is crying. And 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 what you really see is two children, right? Elizabeth, who's just fourteen, and Francis, who's f- fifteen. And they're both terrified for, for, for different reasons, right? And, and Catherine is doing what she can to hold it together. There are lots of tears. Even the uh, quite dour Spanish ambassador is moved. He reports to Philip that everyone was crying um, when Elizabeth leaves. But Catherine is actually quite nervous about this departure for reasons that she can't explicitly talk about. Already, Elizabeth seems to be showing, and and it's not clear how many people know this. Certainly, I think Philip II doesn't know this. Already, Elizabeth is showing signs of of a kind of chronic illness. Elizabeth would would come to suffer from some strange systems, uh, symptoms, excuse me, that would plague her for for the rest of her life. And it's not really clear what those symptoms are. And my guess from from looking at the documents is they start to show up in adolescence. And these symptoms may have been tied to menstruation, but they might have been something, something separate. Catherine is worried about Elizabeth's health. 
but she's also worried because she knows that Elizabeth has not yet started her period. Um, or if she has, it, it's been like maybe once or twice, it's quite erratic, erratic. It's not clear that she's menstruating in any sort of um, established way. So that the whole situation is quite iffy. And it's important to know that even though royal girls, I'm just gonna call them women, but they're really girls, are often betrothed and married quite young, it's, it's quite common to let them mature before actually sending them to their husbands or sending them to the marriage bed. Sometimes even if they're married and, and sent to live with their future husbands, they're allowed time to kind of grow up and physically mature before they're expected to sleep with their husbands. But for political reasons, Catherine just really felt that she couldn't delay in sending Elizabeth um, to Spain. Philip was kind of writing urgent letters asking where his bride was and um, she just really felt, Catherine really felt that in order to maintain the peace between Spain and France, she had to send Elizabeth. So, you know, she's worried for Elizabeth on an emotional level and she's worried about um, Elizabeth's physical health and the menstruation piece is really important uh, politically because the only way that Elizabeth can really establish and um, secure her place at the Spanish court is if she wins Philip's affection and if she's able to conceive and bear a child, preferably a son, because even though girls and women can inherit the Spanish throne, it's always better to have a boy. Um, but Catherine knows that Elizabeth won't be able to do that if she's not actually getting her period. And um, she's really, really eager to have Elizabeth's place at the Spanish court secured. And as I mentioned before, Catherine herself had been barren for 10 years. And so she has every reason to worry that maybe the same future will befall Elizabeth. So it's a, it's a moment of extreme anxiety. Yeah, that's my, that's my scene. Yeah, I mean, it's so, it's really, it's really moving, um, as you describe. And I mean, as well, obviously, Catherine sending Elizabeth there, hoping that she'll be able to conceive because she knows that's what's going to secure the political alliance between the two countries, but that you can't help but wonder, this Philip is significantly older than Elizabeth, and she knows that she's sending her little girl to have sex with a man who's much older than her, and there's no guarantee that it's going to be very nice. It might be, you know, it might he might rape her, uh, you know, you know, so it's kind of a knowledge of sending her to a very adult and distress, potentially distressing fate. Absolutely. And, you know, you know, if you put it in modern terms, it is rape, no matter what it is. Mm. Right. Yeah. That's what it is, even though that's, you know, sort of what happens in, in the 16th century. And, and Catherine knows this has to be done. You know, sort of my subtitle is the, the price of power. Right. And, and, and I think that for me, th this is what was so um, moving were the, these little moments, right? Where we, where we don't, if we just pause for a second and you, you put yourself in the shoes of say Catherine or Elizabeth, like what that was like, knowing that you're sending your child, as you say, into the marriage bed of a man who you don't know and who has been the enemy mm. and, and knowing that you can't go with her. Mm. Um, and the, the best you can do is, you know, send a bunch of letters, which, which Catherine does, and, and then, you know, send some, some very faith, faithful servants, which Catherine also does. She sends Madame de Clermont, who's, who is supposed to act kind of like a, like a stand-in mom. But at the same time, there's, there's really only so much that anyone can do 
right? Because of the customs of the time. And so, yes, the, the only thing you can do is just hope and pray that Elizabeth is going to be okay. Mm. And I, I'm always very interested in the kind of this different attitude um, in different historical periods to to age and to the line between childhood, adolescence and adulthood. Um, because obviously it was completely normal to send a 14-year-old girl. I think he's, is he in his early 30s? Yes, is that yes, right? he's, about, yeah. he's 20 years older than her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sending the sex between people of that age difference wasn't considered obviously taboo in the way that it is now. And I find that really interesting it's an entirely different attitude towards what adulthood is and what that looks like and when it happens I think so and and I think for a while there was this idea that you know childhood as we conceive it um didn't really exist in the period and adolescent and and it's true that it looks different right but at the same time this is very much a child um we have evidence of this so um (laughs) Madame de Clermont, who, you know, is the woman that Catherine sends to be the stand-in mom for for Elizabeth. She was very, very assiduous about reporting to Catherine everything that was happening. And she talks about Elizabeth playing with her dolls. So we know that when Elizabeth gets to Spain, she's still doing these childlike things. And we also know that um, Philip was a little reticent. Uh, It turns out he, he, he ended up being quite a quite a good husband to Elizabeth. But at the beginning, he was a little bit worried about um, sleeping with her because uh, I think he makes a reference to not wanting to hurt her with his strength. And that's a reference to his his penis, actually. But he, he does know that this is a very, a very young girl. So, you know, I don't know if I totally buy that idea that they don't have childhood and adolescence in, in the Renaissance. They very much do. But again, this is sort of the, the price of it. You know, people don't live very long in the Renaissance and anything can happen. Anyone can get sick and die. And so there is a way in which people grab their chance when they can. So after Henry II dies and the Guise swoop in to, to sort of take control of the French throne, they're, they're, they're taking their chance. They're taking the opportunity when they can um, to seize power and, you know, Catherine has to send Elizabeth to Spain because, you know, she needs to, you know, strengthen that alliance. She didn't have time to wait for Elizabeth to grow up. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons why this happens. And it, when I talk about the price of power, it's not necessarily any one person's decision that makes a girl or a, or a woman, you know, suffer for the crown. It's, it's almost systemic. It's, it's part of the conditions of, of dynasty and monarchy um, at the time. Well, I, I could literally sit here and talk to you about this for hours because I'm finding it so interesting. But sadly, we're going to have to head back to the present day. Um, but obviously, I encourage listeners to buy and read your book because there's all of this fabulous detail um, in that and they can enjoy it there before we do head back to the present you are allowed to bring a memento with you from your chosen year so would you like to tell listeners what you've chosen well I've actually chosen two (laughs) I'm greedy (laughs) I hope that's okay so the first the first thing that I would choose would be Henry II's helmet because I would really like to know what happened there you know uh, there's a scholar who has suggested that maybe it was a loose screw in the visor that meant that the visor flew up and he was killed. And the idea that you know, these momentous historical shifts um, could happen from something as small as a loose screw 
is fascinating to me. And it's akin to the idea that these massive historical shifts happen because a girl got her period or didn't in any given month. Um, so so I, I'm sort of fascinated by this idea of, of these small details that have huge consequences. But the second memento that I would bring back would be the first letter that Catherine de' Medici sent to Elizabeth when Elizabeth was on the road to Spain. I would love to know what Catherine wrote in that letter. You know, what was the tone? Did she give her advice? Did she express all of her her grief and sadness at seeing Elizabeth leave? You know, what did that what did you say to a 13-year-old girl who was leaving home um and and who you thought maybe you'd never see again. Mm, mm, those are both wonderful mementos in their own way. I agree the the helmet is um is just kind of an irresistible one to choose. It would be absolutely fascinating to inspect it and equally with the letter. And that's something that comes across so strongly in the book is the relationship between um, these different women, all of the different types of relationships. And you kind of capture it in a way that feels so true to life. You know, one can't help but think of one's own relationship with, you know, your mother or a friend or a sister or um, or anything. So thank you so much for for talking to me about it today and, and taking me to those scenes. It's been really, really enjoyable. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure to talk about it. That was me, Artemis Irvin, speaking to Leah Redmond-Chang about her new book, Young Queens, Three Renaissance Women and the Price of Power. As ever, head over to our website for more information about this episode and any of our others. But until next week, thanks so much for listening. Goodbye.